All right. Well, this morning we're going to be back in the book of Acts, and I invite you, if you would, to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 11. I think what we'll do uh, to finish out this series that we've been doing on the church, as I've titled it, The Most Faithful Little Church in the Bible, and I took that because Antioch comes behind the church in Jerusalem that was the most faithful big church in the Bible. And the Antioch, we could say, rises to the surface and acts as the most faithful little church in the Bible. We'll talk about that more later. But I think what we'll do, beloved, just as you're thinking, putting your mind the next few weeks, today and next time, um, we will... Uh, we will finish out this series, and then Mike and Melanie Katecki are going to be joining our leadership team, and I'll interview them after that, so it'll be perfect timing. We'll end this little series, little break, and then head and hear from Mike and Melanie, which will be really exciting. They're going to be serving at PBA. So a couple more weeks in that. As far as this morning, I want to start with an introduction that burdens me and makes me so, so convinced even more on why... Um, why it is the Spirit of God inspired Luke, who's laying down the history of the church in Acts, to keep bringing to the surface the need for us to think rightly about the local church. In 2007, I was um, playing professional baseball, traveling around the country, and 2007 and 8, I came to Christ in 07, so I was a fairly new believer. And I remember going from town to town and I just come to Christ. I was learning tons of theology. I came here in 2008 and was learning tons more theology. But I remember this time so distinctly because there was a book that swept the nation and became a New York Times number one bestseller. It was on the top of the charts. 20 million copies were sold. And professing Christians were eating up this book as fast as they could get it and proselytizing a generation of people to tell them to read the book. Do you know what the book was called? The Shack. Indeed. William P. Young's The Shack. Sadly, the author is an unbeliever. He's a universalist, thinks that all people end up in heaven eventually. No understanding of a true meaning of the scripture. And outside of the book being full of loads of bad theology, I won't ask who read it and thought it was good. We'll, we'll allow you to have a pass on that for now. But what burdened me, beloved, is I was brand new in Christ, learning tons of truth. And I remember I would go and, to new stadiums and new places, and I was fairly outspoken as a believer, so I was known as a Christian. And I would have write-ups in the bios, and I'd say things about following Christ and things like that. So the Christians in, at the stadiums would typically come and find me, and you'd do autographs and whatever, and they'd say, oh, you're a Christian. And I'd say, I am. And then they typically say something so, I mean, I heard it regularly. Have you read The Shack? And so I started looking into it, and I realized this book is wrought with terrible theology. And I remember one time over here, I was playing at the Hammerhead Stadium, telling this gal who was so convinced The Shack literally changed her life. And I was so burdened, I just, I don't remember exactly what I said, but I think she snarled at me when I was done, but I said something like, that book is awful. You need to find better books than that. That's not going to teach you about the God of the Bible. She stormed off or whatever. But I remember being so burdened as a new believer saying, how is it that the professing evangelical church is eating up a volume like this? How could our discernment be so bad? These church attenders who are going to church every week and saying they love the Lord Jesus Christ are swallowing up such bad theology. And, and I think what was 
most grieving, if you look back on the book, particularly as we're looking at Acts, is the book actually taught you a version of Christianity, listen, that made the institution of the local church created by God something that was harming to your personal relationship with Jesus. If you go back and read that book, you will find the underlying theme is you can have a vibrant, flourishing relationship with Jesus outside of any connection with His church. In fact, the church becomes a hindrance or an obstacle to authentically following Jesus. As one author says, just describing and summarizing the book, in this runaway bestseller, The Shack, the Jesus character explains that he doesn't like religion. And he doesn't create institutions. The church we see is a man-made system. The church I came to build, Jesus says in the book, is all about relationships and sharing life. Beloved, nothing could be further from what the New Testament teaches you about the local church. And yet professing believers were rallying around this volume. How could it be that those that say they love the Lord Jesus Christ know so little about the local church and even come to a point where they could say, this book's amazing. It teaches me I can have a personal relationship with Jesus, share others with followers of Jesus, and totally neglect that stuffy place called the church. You know what God says in Scripture if you start to compile passages in your New Testament? Here's what God would say in response to Mr. Young. I came to save people. Call them into my body and call them my church. Start an institution that calls people out from the culture and gathers people together. And I call it the body of believers, the church, that I purchase with my own blood. And to betray being part of my body is to betray what it looks like to be a Christian. That's what God would say. Mark Dever speaks at times at college campuses and different places. And he he talks about when he wants to speak to collegians and they ask him to speak, he typically has a message that he speaks and he wants to teach them about the church because the church is the good news of this generation has not got. They have not learned about the local church. And so here's what he says. Sometimes college campus ministries will ask me to speak to their students. I've been known on several occasions to begin my sermons with, quote, If you call yourself a Christian, but are not a member of the church you regularly attend, I worry that you might be going to hell. You could say that gets their attention, Dever says. Now, am I just going for shock value, Dever says? I don't think so. So why would I begin with this kind of warning? Dever continues. It's because I want them to see something of the urgency of the need for a healthy local church in the life of a Christian and to begin sharing the passion for the church that characterizes both Christ and his followers. I don't know, but if I had a show of hands here, it would probably be pretty telling how many of you actually learned about the role of the local church in your life prior to either coming here or another healthy local church. How many of you had a healthy paradigm of what God wants from you in the local church prior to here or a previous healthy church? Anybody? Show of hands. Okay, how about a couple raised in good homes? A minority knew about the church, right? Most of you knew nothing about the church. I was... I was thinking about my own conversion. I've told you many times, the first year of my Christianity, I was radically saved trying to read and study and attending Starbucks some on Sunday mornings to read Wayne Grudem so I wouldn't go to a church. I knew nothing. 
It wasn't until God brought me here that I really learned about the local church. In fact, Easter morning 11 years ago was the first time I actually sat under an expository sermon in a local church here. Beloved, if you take a survey and start to think about what your Bible says about the church and what the book of Acts says about the church, you realize that you can't have a Christ-centered life without having a church-centered life. It's impossible. Because the church is the bride of Christ. It is His body. He is the head. Let me just show you a couple passages as we begin to think about Acts. And you can see a little bit what rises to the surface in your New Testament. Let's just take a few survey passages as we begin and then we'll look at Antioch. Matthew 16. Turn there really quickly. There's a promise made. You remember how William Young said, Oh, there's no institution that we need to be concerned about. Huh. Interesting. Here's what Jesus would say. Matthew 16, 18. There's only one institution He makes a promise to. You cannot outgrow these principles, beloved. I also say to you, you are Peter, and upon this rock, that is to say, your message, your convictions, I'm grounding it in you, Peter, because you're going to lead the charge as the church launches into Acts. I... And the, the message that you believe and the convictions that you have that I've handed to you. On that, that foundation, I will build my church and the gates of hell, you could translate that, will not overpower it. There's no promises to Christian institutions. There's no promises to parachurch ministries. There's no promises to your job. There's no promises to anything from Jesus. But He does make a promise to the church that hell cannot come against it. <coughs> Let's keep turning over here. Look at Acts 20:28. 20, Look at how precious the church is to Jesus. Precious. Do you want to know the value of the church in the mind of Jesus, in the mind of God? It's compared to the preciousness of the flowing red blood of Jesus Christ. Acts 20:28. 20, Be on guard, Paul tells the elders in Ephesus, for yourselves and for the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd, notice, the church of God. Who does the church belong to? God. Which He purchased with His own blood. How valuable is the church to Jesus? As valuable as His blood. How about Ephesians 3.10? The centerpiece of God's wisdom that the rulers and authorities on heaven and earth and those in the spiritual realms, when they look down and they want to see the centerpiece of God's wisdom, Ephesians 3.10. Have you ever seen this before? This is one of my favorite passages in the New Testament. It's describing Paul's ministry. And then he talks about the church. So that the manifold, verse 10 of chapter 3 of Ephesians. So the manifold, we might say the centerpiece, the most beautiful, that which God wants to most put on display, notice, in His wisdom. So when God's putting His wisdom on display, He wants it to be made known through the church. And look who's looking in. Rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Wow. The church is not only here to be seen on earth, but up in heaven in the spiritual warfare and spiritual battle. And you could say that's rulers and authorities of those that might be of the evil realm in the spiritual battle and those that you might even say are under the Lord Jesus, reigning and ruling. And His angels and His, his armies, they look down and they see God's wisdom in the church. You, you cannot think more highly of the church than God. You can't. Did you know that if you lose the church, you lose the truth? Did you know that? If you lose 
the local church, upholding the truth, you will lose the truth. Look at 1 Timothy 3. We are far too casual about the church. 1 Timothy 3. Paul is writing to Timothy. What are the purpose of 1 and 2 Timothy? Well, Paul has one message, Timothy. I want you to know how to conduct yourself in the local church. Where was Timothy ministering? Ephesus. 1 Timothy 3.15 But in case I am delayed, I write to you, Timothy, so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. What's the household of God? What is God's house? Which is the church of the living God, the active God, the alive God who's constantly working. And then look at what the church is identified as. It gives an ID. The pillar and support of the truth. That is the idea of beams or pillars that uphold something it sits upon. So if you pull out the pillars, if you pull out the beams, the truth falls down and is lost. That's the way the church is put forth in your Bible. Revelation 1. Let's just finish it up. What does Jesus say to John when he's finishing up all of Revelation and giving this incredible message that Pastor Jerry's been teaching to us in the evenings? It's very interesting to think about this. That when the revelation is given to John and he's finishing off his revelation and he wants it to be known, who does he want it to land with and who is John concerned about because Jesus is concerned about them? Revelation 1, 17-20. John in his vision. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. Revelation 1.17. This is speaking of Jesus. And he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead. And behold, I am alive forever. And I have the keys of death and Hades. So Jesus speaking of his authority. Therefore, John, in light of what I'm about to say, write these things which you have seen and the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of, notice, the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And then Revelation 2 and 3, what does Jesus do tell John before he leaves? You warn those churches, you encourage those churches, because if those churches aren't faithful, I'll remove their lampstand, they'll no longer be a light. And the truce that you're bringing for them to carry them on they will fall with them. Sure, Jesus is going to build His church. It cannot be overcome. That's a promise. But the culpability is put on us to understand the church, to live inside the church, to have a Christ-centered, church-centered life. In fact, did you know that God, we don't have to turn to it, has been planning to unfold the mystery of the church since Genesis 2? Go read Ephesians 5 later. He makes a comparison on husbands and wives to the church, and he says, this mystery is profound. What are you talking about, Paul? I'm referencing Christ and the church. That is to say, God had in his mind in Genesis 2 that someday marriage would represent this profound, beautiful thing he's called the church with the head and the body. And turn back to Acts now, Acts 9. Did you know, and I've told you this before, but you may be new to our ministry, did you know that however you treat the church... God views that as how you treat Him. Did you know that? Think about that for a second. If you persecute the church, God views it as persecution on Him. If you neglect the local church, He views it as you neglecting Him. If you're indifferent and casual about the local church, He views it as indifference and being casual towards Him. How you treat the church is how you treat Christ. How do we know that? Notice this confrontation of Paul in Acts 9. 
Now Saul, that being Paul, Acts 9, breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. What is that? Disciples of the Lord. The church, the gathered ones. All through the book of Acts, the disciples are those gathered in local churches. So Paul goes to the high priest. He asks for letters from the synagogue. He's going to go persecute them. He's on his way. Verse 3, he's traveling. It happened that he was approaching Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and he fell to the ground and a voice from heaven, which was the voice of Jesus, as we'll see in a moment. Look at what Jesus says. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Wait a second. He was going to persecute Christians. He was going to persecute the church. And Jesus says, how you're treating them is how you're treating me. We sure of that? Look at the next line. Jesus says it again. Verse 5, And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, who you are persecuting. Immediately in Paul's mind, he was keenly aware that however I treat the church, Jesus takes it personal. Beloved, all that is to say this. When we go to the book of Acts and we're studying it, you see the word go forth, right? You see the gospel go forth in the book of Acts. But do you know what you see in the book of Acts? You see the church marching on as the reference point, the anchor point where believers gather. They are equipped and they spread out and they get saved and then more churches are established then more churches go out. The book of Acts is, is a church-centered, mission-centered book that you should see when you read it how often it comes back to the local church. We've seen Jerusalem planted. We've seen Samaria and Judea churches planted. And then now we're in Antioch, the first church planted with Gentiles. So, if you remember, we've been looking at the church of Antioch. And what did I say about the church in Antioch? Anyone remember last week? What are some things we learned about Antioch? Yes? church Yes. Jews and Gentiles. Sorry, Jews and Gentiles. So that's a good point. There's only two types of people on the planet, right? There's those that are ethnically Jewish from the line of Abraham and those that are Gentile. Up to this point, we've only had Jewish Christians saved, starting in Jerusalem. And we've had some proselytes that were either partially proselytized to Judaism that were Gentiles and took on some of the customs of Judaism. But we've not had a mission effort go to the non-Jews, the Gentiles. But remember, God wakens Peter, rise, kill, eat, sends him out, goes to Cornelius, Cornelius is saved, and we start seeing Gentiles be saved. And Antioch is the first Gentile church that will add Jews. That's significant, right? Because we're about to see a big issue arise about circumcision coming up here because Jews are being added to a Gentile church and they're saying they're not really legitimate unless they're circumcised like us. That will come in our coming chapters. That's the book of Galatians. Here's your context for Galatians right here. So, that's true. What about this church? What else rises to the surface? Yeah, Mary. They're a model. For the next ten chapters or so of Acts and beyond, really, they arise in the book of Acts as the most faithful little church in the Bible, we might say. How big they were, we don't know. They weren't as big as Jerusalem. There was a, quite a few that were saved, but we might even say they're more relatable in one sense. The church in Jerusalem might have been 20,000 before it was persecuted, and then it spread out to all these little churches. Antioch, we might say, gives us a better feel of what a, a Grace Emmanuel ought to think and look like with Jew and Gentile merge in this smaller little church in this pagan community of Antioch. Yep. What else? Anything you guys remember? They were born out of persecution. Notice, 
Great point, Sam. Verse 19. So then those who scattered because of persecution. That is to say, Antioch is a result of, listen, faithful believers who once lived in Jerusalem, who when they were persecuted, they ran for the hills, set up new lives north of where Antioch is at, and then were going out as faithful followers of Christ to evangelize other areas. And as a result of Stephen's death and persecution, the gospel ends up getting to the Gentiles. So you go all the way back to Stephen's death again and realize the ongoing impact of the life of Stephen, the first martyr, and his faithfulness and the persecution in Jerusalem. Pretty awesome connection. Yep. Anything else? Yeah. Noah, go ahead. One, yeah, I'll just go with Noah. You're good. They were first called Christians. We are going to spend a lot of time on that today. What does it mean to have the culture call you a Christian? They didn't assign that title to themselves. They were called it. Very interesting. We've been looking at, guys, seven characteristics of the most, faith, the, the most faithful little church in the Bible. Last time we saw what? First characteristic, they were affirmed by godly men as those evidencing the unmistakable grace of God. Notice back in your text, after the church is born in Antioch, uh, they come and they're saved and believers are gathered together. They turn from their wicked life and they trust in, in Jesus the, as Lord. In 21 of chapter 11, And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. And the news about them reached the ears of the church in Jerusalem who had now been able to regather. Persecution had died down in Jerusalem. And they sent Barnabas. And as we talked about last week, Luke really lifts Barnabas up as this model believer to look to. And I think I said to you last week a comment I want to edit and adjust. And that's okay. It's, it's good for me to keep learning. I was realizing that right where we're at here in Acts 11 is the same time that Paul is going to go and confront Peter when he's confusing and being confused in Galatia. And we're going to see in a little bit, we're right in the context where Luke, where, where I mean, excuse me, where Luke's going to show Paul coming down and he's going to stop and confront Peter in this whole Antioch adventure here. And in that, you see a little comment where Peter gets confused and starts falling to his fear of man. And he's so powerful and influential that even Barnabas, for a moment, starts to doubt and slip. And so... It was just interesting for me to think about the usefulness of Barnabas and yet still his vulnerability. <laughs> it was an interesting thing to think about. So Barnabas, all but one comment, is laid forth as this godly model, but still with weaknesses. But when Barnabas comes to Antioch, beloved, notice what he sees. It reached him, he arrived, verse 23, and all he saw all over these believers' life was the grace of God. Last week we talked about what it means to have the grace of God. Today, second characteristic that we're going to see in this little church of Antioch. They had a voracious appetite to hear Scripture and apply it without compromise. They had a voracious appetite to hear Scripture and apply it without compromise. And if you remember, beloved, as we look at this principle, I want you to think about something. I want you to think about it corporately and I want you to think about it personally. This is describing a church that Luke lifts up and says, be like this church, Grace Emmanuel. Be what they're like as a corporate body. Evaluate if you're like them. And then individually ask yourself, believer, if you reflect the heart of this church in Antioch. As I'll ask you a few times today, if you showed up in Antioch, would you fit in? 
Notice now this church is planted, it's born, it's been established, it's growing. And the second characteristic we're about to see, they had a voracious appetite to hear Scripture and apply it without compromise. I'm very deliberate why I say that. Notice verses 25 and 26. Barnabas, 25, leaves for Tarsus to go get Saul, who is Paul, who's now saved and walking with the Lord and being equipped. And he's the missionary to the Gentiles, and this faithful church needs equipping. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And notice this, now Pastor Paul and Pastor Barnabas, how'd you like that as you're those equipping you? For an entire year, they met with the church. And notice, during this year, I really want you to see this, three things emerge during this year that Luke brings to the surface he wants us to see. Uh, Barnabas and Paul meet with the church for the entire... They, they come for an entire year and they do three things. They meet with the church, they taught considerable numbers, and the disciples were first called Christians. So, three things to look at here. They were meeting with the church, considerable numbers were taught, and the believers in Antioch, the disciples, were first called Christians. I think we can bring to the surface right away, right up front, that meeting with the church implies that these men were devoted to equipping. They were prioritizing time with this church. If you think back to the Jerusalem church, just think with me for a second. We go back to Acts 2. What happened when the disciples, the apostles, met with the church in Jerusalem? They gathered together. They had meals together. They corporately gathered together on Sunday. All the time, day in and day out, they were spending loads of time together. Scholars believe, and it wouldn't be unprecedented, to say that they believe that these early churches met every single day to be equipped. So for an entire year, this hungry, with a voracious appetite church is anxious to come every opportunity they get and be with Paul and be with Barnabas and be equipped. Notice, considerable numbers. That means lots of new believers. How many? We don't know. Doesn't match Jerusalem, it doesn't seem, with all the amount, but there was a good group that had been saved. And notice what was going on. They weren't just gathering to hang out. They weren't just doing coffee. <laughs> they weren't just doing waffles. <laughs> it's okay to do those things. You should do those things. Have those times together. But the content of the time, when they got together in corporate gathering and house to house, and it's tough to know what was going on. Did, did Paul and Barnabas set up a place where you could come all day long and just meet with them? Was it just, hey, we're going to go Monday through Saturday and all day long get in line and meet with them? Was there larger equipping sermon times each evening and then Sundays they'd have a whole day of worship? It, we don't know, but we know this. Here's what was going on. Teaching. Notice. They taught considerable numbers. It's interesting. Taught is the word to be equipped, to be fortified. Uh, if you Greek scholars, didaskalos, didaskalon. It's the idea of taking the truth, putting it in the mind in such a way that it sticks and it's retained and a person can go apply it once they're done learning it from you. The ability to teach. It's kind of what I taught you on Thursday night. They were not only teaching them what to think, which is crucial, they need the content, but how to keep it in their mind and how to apply it in a variety of ways. They were equipping them day in and day out, putting the truth in their mind. But here's what I find most challenging, beloved. Met and taught. Look at those two verbs there. They were in verse 26. They, were, they met with them and they taught them. 
Here's how you could capture the verbal ideas there. The verbal ideas would be the idea that this church was relentlessly, constantly, without pause, being taught and equipped and fortified, which would imply they wanted to be there. They wanted to hear the Word. They could not get enough. Every chance they got to hear from the Word of God, they ran to sit under Paul and Barnabas' teaching. And in fact, we're going to see a whole bunch of men get equipped in this church. So there was men's ministry. There was women's ministry. Every chance they got, they could not refrain from finding their way into being taught the Word of God. Every day, they wanted more. We might say this. They were not just Sunday Christians. They were not those who said, you know what, I'll go get a sermon on Sunday and then I'll kind of let that take me through the week and prioritize other things and then maybe by next Sunday I'll kind of be hungry again and maybe I can get another little sermon from the pastor. No. Every day, every chance, every opportunity, they ran to have the Word of God put in their mind. They were not those trying to fit some Bible studies into the midst of a busy week. They were not those who gathered with believers when their family schedule just wasn't too busy other than sporting events. They were not those who just poured into the church when it wasn't a really tough school semester. They were those that you could not keep from the Word of God. You could not hold them back. They must hear truth. They were desperate. Imagine a bunch of pagan Gentiles rescued from the culture and they ran to Paul and Barnabas and said, we need truth. Equip us. Help us. We see our struggle. We see the dangers. We see the culture. Teach us the Word of God. We're desperate for it. As often as they could get it. I marvel. I was thinking about this group in here. I, I, I love the core in this room. You remind me of Antioch. At a minimum, most of you sit under four sermons a week. <laughs> Come on a Thursday, most of you come all day today, you go and have a time at fellowships in the afternoon, you talk about truth, and then you tell me about all the sermons and books you're reading in between that. That's Antiochish. They could not get enough truth, guys. They were desperate. You think about what kind of person is so desperate for the Word of God that every chance they get, these Antiochs would run to it. They must have been a people so convinced of their own depravity, so knowing how vulnerable they were prone to wander, so grateful for Christ that every chance they got to learn from Him, they ran to Him. These were new believers. But that shouldn't stop. I mean, I've been saved 11 years, and ever since God saved me, He turned something on in me with an appetite for Scripture that it is the greatest joy of my life to hear from Scripture. And I was thinking this week, Darren, why do you keep running back? Why does the Scripture never get boring? Why do you never get tired of it? Why do you dig into it? And all you can do, even before I went into ministry and before I went to seminary, every waking moment I had, I wanted to learn from good books, good discipleship, good men, the Bible. Why? Well, one, I guess I'm just that sinful. I'm desperate. But you know what? I see power. I find deliverance in my life from the truths of Scripture. They give me power. Who doesn't want more of that? Which makes me think the people that don't run back to the Scripture are not enjoying the benefit of its grace and power in their life. A person that's going to Scripture, being equipped, learning with a humble heart, taking in the truth, putting it in their mind, believing it in faith, and seeing it transform them from grace to grace into the image of Jesus Christ, moment by moment, they can't get enough. Give me six sermons and I want a seventh. That was Antioch. And they were new believers. But I wonder sometimes, what happens to us? If you look back, if your appetite, this is just maybe a footnote, 
is less than it was your first year you were saved, something's wrong with that. Because you're no less desperate, you're no less needy, you're no less vulnerable. Solomon taught his boys the truth that he abandoned. David walked on the roof when he should have been at battle. <laughs> Abraham lied multiple times. How long do I need to go to show sinning saints? Um, the only reason the Bible would say that you stop being like Antioch is really two reasons. For a church, corporately, the church becomes dead. God takes their lampstand and they lose their appetite. Revelation 2 and 3, you don't repent, I'm taking your lampstand. So if a church loses its appetite, you know what a church does then? They're in 2 Timothy 4, they raise up teachers that fit their appetites because they don't want the strong truth. There's dead churches everywhere that gather people every week. Lampstand's gone, God doesn't attend that church, Isaiah 66, 1 and 2. But they show up and hear some ditty of a sermon and then go into their week. If it's not the robust word of God and their appetite is for something more shallow, God's left the building. You can go read that in Isaiah 66. You can read it in Revelation 2 and 3 if you don't believe me. You can go read it in 2 Timothy 4. What about for a Christian? If you take Matthew 13, the parable of the soils, Hebrews 5, 11 to 14, go ahead and go study it, 1 Peter 2, 1 to 3, you only have two conclusions why a believer would start off like Antioch and then lose their appetite. You're either sick or you're dead. You're either spiritually sick, not dealing with sin, which robs you of your appetite for Scripture. I mean, those of you that strive in sanctification, don't you find the more you strive to bring God glory in sanctification, the more effort you put forth, the more humility and repentance take shape in your life, the more you want this in your life, the more you lap it up, and the more indifferent you are and lazy and slothful about dealing with sin, the more you come to this and it feels dry and you feel spiritually parched, but you go to the Word and you're not finding the enjoyment in it, you're not desperate for it. Why? What was the, the great statement? Wasn't it D.L. Moody that said, either sin will keep you from the Bible or the Bible will keep you from sin? Beloved, Antioch appetite should not stop. If it is, you're either sick, you're not dealing with sin in your life. Go read 1 Peter 2. There's a list of sins that rob you of your appetite from Scripture. 1 Peter 2, 1-3. Or you're dead. You have not tasted the kindness of the Lord. Or as Matthew 13 said, you were one of the soils that sprouted up initially and then when it was costly to follow Christ, you just went away. You may still hold the title of Christian, but you have no appetite for the things of Christ. You're dead spiritually. Antioch appetite is regeneration. To lose it, we're either sick or dead. And if you're sick, you need to repent. If you're dead, you need to repent. The answer is the same. But I was just thinking this week, why this church is put forth for us like this is we need to see this is what God wants Grace Emmanuel to be. It shouldn't be people have to text you and prod you to get you to come sit under another sermon. You should say, is there an opportunity for me to hear from God? Let me go. Get out of my way. I need the Word of God. Do you know something about this church? Let me tell you something. This is amazing. Do you know that they weren't just hearing Scripture? They weren't the double-minded man. They weren't just hearing Scripture and then leaving. They weren't just sitting under sermons and going, oh, that was nice today, I'm going to go do what I want. Sermons, truth, discipleship, shepherding, body life under Paul and Barnabas and the equipping, it was radically transforming their life at this level. 
to the point where the pagans in their life, at their workplaces, at their schooling that they may have had, at their jobs, in the marketplace, in their families, the pagans in their life looked at them and said, you are so different, so radically transformed, something has happened to you that's so distinct, you've so abandoned your, your previous way of life, I have to start calling you something different because I don't know what you are anymore. And what did they call them? Notice. How do we know they were applying the truth at that level? How do we know they lapped it up and I said they applied it without compromise? Notice. 26. After they were met and taught and being equipped, after the grace of God was so abundant in their life, and the disciples, disciples is the terminology, guys, that we've seen through Jesus' time and all through the book of Acts. Disciple was your main designation for a Christian, either disciple or saint or brethren. And now, all of the sudden, this church in Antioch was given a new title. Christian. Wow. Did you know that the term Christian is only used three times in your New Testament? It's used here, and we'll look in a moment as probably a derogatory term. It's used in Acts 26, 28, when Paul is before Agrippa and he's looking like a crazy man and he associates him with trying to teach him Christianity. And then it's in 1 Peter 4, 16 and Peter says, if you suffer as a Christian, you glorify God. Three times. How did the Antiochians, first Bible of Antioch, we'll call it, <laughs> How did they come to be called Christians? Well, remember, we're in a Greek culture now. And it was common. This is a, the main hub, one of the largest three cities in the Roman Empire. It was common when you had a group that was so associated with a message and a life and a way of life, they would call them something. For example, in Rome at that time, you would have had the Herodians. Those that were those that followed Herod or barbarians or whatever it was. They were associated. And in, and in Antioch, you understand, it was such a segregated, false-worshipping, idolatrous city with 500,000 people. They would even put segregating areas to put you with your group. Well, what are we going to do with these Christ followers? They're not Jews. They're not Herodians. They're not barbarians. They don't act like us, like the normal Gentiles. Something's massively different about them. So, we could, we could come up with this. They came up with the term Christian. Why would they use the term Christian? Well, Christ in Greek means Messiah. It means the anointed one. It means the one they should follow. And so, they looked at this group and said, all you care about is His message. All that's on your lips is Jesus the Nazarene. You call Him the Christ. You call Him the Messiah. You live like Him. You're willing to suffer for Him because He suffered and died for what He did. You'd give anything for Him, and everything in your life is about loyalty to Him. Yeah, we should call you those that follow Him. Beloved, think about that. Their lives were so radically transformed that the culture said, you look like Christ. You look like that man, Jesus of Nazarene, that we crucified. I love what F.F. Bruce said the culture would have said about them. Oh, Christians... These are the people always talking about Christos, Christ. They are the Christ people. Let's call them the Christians. Don't you love that? We are the Christ people. Known by those that follow the message in life of Christ. You know what just absolutely burdens me? Today, it's nothing like that. 
It doesn't, when you call someone a Christian, it doesn't mean radical commitment to follow him, willingness to die for him, so conformed from your old life to the new that everyone around you says everything in your life is conforming to that guy whose message got him killed and you're willing to do that without compromise. You're a Christian. I remember sitting on a plane one time, I've told you guys this story, and I was sitting next to this gal and I was reading my Bible or some book and, you know, the Lord sometimes gives me opportunities on planes and I love that and... She looks over and sees me reading, and she says, Oh, you're a Christian. And I said, Yes. I'm thinking, this is it. This is my opportunity. And she goes, Oh, I know Christians. You're like Joel Osteen. <laughs> and, and, you know, it's hard for me to be speechless. <laughs> but it was a moment. And I sat there, and I thought, Where does one go from here? <laughs> I had to describe to her there's a difference between those that call themselves Christians, like the Joel Osteens, and a true Christian. But in her mind, she just had one category. Today, calling yourself a Christian is like, I'm a golfer. I'm a millennial. I'm a fill-in-the-blank. It's just some benign title that has nothing meant to it. When they were first called Christians, it's because they were so radically transformed and so committed to follow Christ that the world thought, you're those crazy people that follow the Christ. You'll probably die for that. Soon we'll see many of them die for that. Uh, yeah, you're going to go off in your little corner over here with those other Christ followers. That woman on the plane, I spent an hour explaining to her what a true Christian was and trying to distinguish myself from Joel Osteen. Didn't take much to talk about his false message and false life, but it was sad to me to think the culture nowadays thinks Christian and they think powerless, prosperity, confusion. Um, you know, what do people think a lot today? Oh, you call yourself a Christian, so you can just go sin how you want and still have your get out of jail free card, get out of hell free card. Whatever it may be. So what was happening when they were called Christians in Antioch? What was happening? Probably two things, okay? Two things were probably happening. One, it was probably a derogatory term, so it probably sounded like this. The pagans would say, would sneer and say, oh, that's the Christians. Those who are so committed to a dead Messiah, yet they still speak for Him, live for Him, follow Him, and everything in their life's about Him. And those that hated Christ would eventually start persecuting them. <coughs> And then I envisioned what the Christians would say. Because as you read church history for the next couple hundred years, you start seeing the designation of Christian coming and they're associating themselves with that. And Peter actually used it and says, hey, if you suffer as a Christian, that's good. So I imagine the believers said, oh, you're calling me a Christian? You're calling me a Christ follower, the Christ people? You're saying that I live and speak like Jesus? Oh yeah, I'll take it. <laughs> Go ahead and give me that title. That's a great title for what I'm about. Christ and following Him. Satan's done a great work, hasn't he, guys? Redefining Christianity, redefining the term and making it mean something less than it does. To be called a Christian in the New Testament meant you radically followed the life and message of Christ. And unbelievers, listen, would have not just known you at your workplace and at your school, oh, that's the guy that's kind of, he says he's a Christian, but I don't really, no. no. It is so evident in your life that you follow Christ that someone says, oh, probably nowadays it sounds like this, oh, you're that crazy Christian. You're that legalistic Christian. You're that super Christian that's actually really serious about the Bible. I like my other friends that say they're Christians that don't actually call me to repentance. I like my other friends that are Christians that will actually go live in the world with me. 
I like my other friends that are Christians that aren't making me feel so uncomfortable by separating from worldliness. You're the super crazy legalistic Christian. You go over there in the corner. That's probably what it's like today. So, good news. If you're called the crazy, extremist, legalistic Christian, welcome to Antioch Christianity. What a blessing. Normal Christianity is to be treated like Christ. You live so radically and you're so transformed, you've burned your old life at such a level that people just look at you and say, you follow something different than you were before. And it must have been in the workplaces and all over, so many radical con conversions from what people were to brand new, that people must say, we've got to give them a name. And we know that even because the verb doesn't mean they called themselves Christians. Just look at it again if you want to underline it. The name was assigned to them. It literally means to bear a mark or to bear a name or to have it assigned to you. Look at it again. The disciples were first called Christians. They were assigned a title you could put there if you want to write a little note in the margin. They were assigned this name in Antioch. Darren. Yes. The way you just characterized the liberal professing Christian yeah. name only maybe at the time yep. fruit. Yep. But the crazy, you know, our side of things. Yep. You know, the culture is increasingly calling us haters yep. and passing laws that say that what we believe traditionally to be reformed Christianity is hateful. Hateful, unloving, yeah. Become illegal mm -hmm. increasingly. So that persecution, that suffering as a Christian your generation is going to get tested in that. Big time. And that's why this is so incredible, you know, that we're in this junction here in Antioch. It's incredible. It's coming for them, right? In, in, in the book of Acts and on through the New Testament. By the time you get to Pliny in 107, Christianity is full-blown illegal. Nero sets fire to Rome. July something of 64 blames the Christians. They start killing Christians. Uh, even, even at the commencement <laughs> that the vice president was telling a so-called... Christian University, Taylor University, that to be a Christian is not going to be easy in America. And it just made me thinking about our wow. grads, where um, if the Vice President of the United States came to a commencement at PBA, how many students from PBA would walk out like they did at Taylor University? A, a so-called Christian University. Yeah. Protest to a Christian Vice President. How about this? Let's just take it right home. That's a great point. And let me just add to what you said because I think it's so helpful. How many of us and how full would this room be were picketers starting to line up on Sunday mornings, throwing rocks through our window on the way when we pulled into church, hating us, knowing that at any time the government had unleashed the ability to persecute any of those that have hate speech in their mouth, speak against abortion, speech against same-sex marriage. That's now hate speech that's ripping down our culture. And if we find you at a church that does that, we have the ability to imprison you. I mean, how big would this room be? It may happen in your generation, in this country. Yeah. It's, uh, we, we enjoy a Christianity unprecedented, guys, in the history of the church. A, perse a persecution-free Christianity. I heard a great line sometime back. Persecution is the only suffering you choose. Think about that. All you have to do is abandon your convictions and the suffering will stop. 
But to choose persecution means you do what these Antiochians did. They applied the word without compromise, no matter the cost. I was thinking about you, GIBC, this beloved group. I, you remind me of Antioch. You guys show up to tolerate me multiple times a week. I don't know how many sermons a month you guys listen to. And all the sermons and all the discipleship. I mean, you guys, when I see you in between sermons, the way you read, the way you think, the way you're discipling, the core of this room in here reminds me of Antioch. So be encouraged. You may be convicted and say, I need to do more. Of course, me too. But that is the call here. But that doesn't mean you guys aren't living. I see so many of you with a voracious appetite to apply the word and strive in it and grow in it. And you always want more. I mean, literally, it just... I mean, I, I feel like I preach at the best place on the planet. I get the benefit of Jerry's 18 years in the pulpit and the appetite at GIBC being what it is. But you guys just come hungry all the time. I mean, in fact, if I lay an egg and preach some dead sermon, you let me know about that too. <laughs> Which is great. But you're so hungry for the Word. You're like Antioch, so be encouraged. But I want to ask those of you that maybe not be part of our core, some maybe that attend and aren't really as hungry, I want you to consider this question. If you arrived in Antioch, would you fit in with the first two points? They were characterized by godly men affirming unmistakable grace in their life. And they were characterized by a voracious appetite to hear Scripture and apply it without compromise. And that showed up in their local church life. Would you fit in in Antioch? Would you? If you showed up to Antioch, would they say, he's one of us. Sinner, broken, falling, stumbling, hungry, aggressive, willing to stand. There's the grace of God. I see power in his life. He loves the gospel, loves the truth. I see it. Or would you be on the fringe, sitting back, hanging back, not that hungry, and they'd be like, Wait, don't you realize what God's done for you? What's going on with you? So where are you guys? I want you to think about that. Would I fit in in Antioch? And those of you that do fit in in Antioch, I'm sure Antioch was still always a struggling, striving congregation, but this was what they were characterized by, and that's why Luke brings them forth. Next time, we're going to see that they did not hesitate to serve other needy churches at great personal cost to self. They had holy living and bold outreach. They were a missionary sending church, rich discipleship, and they stood with persecution. Beloved, let me tell you something. This is biblical Christianity in your New Testament, not shack Christianity. Right? Let's pray. Lord, thanks for this time and this group. Mike's comments provoking greater thought. I love fellowship group context, Lord, where we can talk about these things. Lord, as we go hear from Brian about being devoted to prayer, sermons like, studies like these in Acts call us to pray more as dependent creatures because we're going to have to stand and we will not do it on our own strength or we will fall. Peter even proves that to us. So Lord, we, we pray for those here that may be sick or dead, that they would repent. Those that are dead, they'd see their need if their appetite's not there. And those that are of the striving and growing but stumbling, they'd be encouraged. This is not perfection but direction, a pattern of life. I see this all over our group as their pastor. I pray that they would not grow weary but be encouraged to excel still more. Thanks for this time this morning. We're so grateful for this most faithful little church in the Bible, Lord. Thanks for putting it in the book of Acts and allowing us to study it. Such a privilege. In your name we pray. Amen. You guys are dismissed.